All right, if you want to grab a seat. In, De in December, I had, to, I had to take my car to get inspected so that I could renew my license plate tags. And um, a car inspection is always uh, a, kind of a nerve-wracking experience for me because, as I've mentioned before, I can fix nothing if something shows up wrong. And so take the car to get it inspected. They hook it up to, its, to the, you know, the computer and everything. They run through. They get the diagnostic test. Thankfully, everything was fine this time and it passed, but they do that diagnostic kind of scan of your vehicle there, and it points out to you any problems or any issues or uh, things that might need to be corrected within your car, and when it comes at least to your inspection, you're working somewhat on like a pass-fail, like your car's either gonna pass inspection or it's going to fail inspection, and you're going to need to fix X, Y, and Z in order to be able to pass the inspection, renew your tags, and all that kind of stuff. This morning, uh, I want us to kind of uh, hook up to the computer and do a little diagnostic scan. This morning will be the last push that Romans gives us toward this idea of being mission-driven. And the good news is that when it comes to, to doing that kind of uh, evaluation in our heart, we're not working on a pass-fail sort of scale. We're all a work in progress, and the Holy Spirit is guiding a process that's playing itself out inside each and every one of us, where we're being conformed into the image of Christ, and we're being uh, shaped and molded. Our heart is being shaped and molded into a heart that, above all, has a supreme affection for the Lord, and a supreme desire for Christ. And as that builds itself deeper and deeper into the very core of who we are, this idea of being gospel-centered that we've talked about, certain things begin to bubble up inside of us. And one of them is that we have this burning passion for the lost, that we are driven by the mission of Christ to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. This morning, we're going to get that one final reminder from some autobiographical information that Paul gives us in the, in the back half of Romans chapter 15. He gives us kind of a window into his own heart and into his own passion for proclaiming the gospel. In so doing, we see kind of the anatomy of a mission-driven heart. It's the heart, in this case, for Paul, of a man who gave every ounce of his life to proclaiming the gospel. It's the heart of an individual who, above all else, lived in a way that was entirely gospel-centered. And because of that, could not help but long for those who are far from Christ to hear the gospel and to respond to it. And so this is what we're going to see over the course of this morning, that a mission-driven heart directs all attention to Christ, maintains a vision for the lost, and depends on the Lord in prayer. We're going to work from Romans 15, verse 14, to the end of the chapter, which is verse 33, and we'll work our way through the passage as we work our way through this statement. Let's pray and then we'll dive in. God, thanks for this morning. Lord, for uh, power and electricity in our building, which was a question uh, as of last night. God, for a place to gather and worship where it's warm and uh, where we can group together, Lord, at the foot of the cross we can look with adoration and joy to the gospel and to your grace. Lord, where we can link together as a family of believers and 
worship you corporately alongside one another in song and in prayer and in your word and in interaction and fellowship with one another. God, I pray that that would be encouraging to this body of Christ this morning. That what we do here in this building over the next hour or so would be a microcosm of what it's gonna be like when we do this for eternity in heaven. God, I pray that the worship that exudes from this place this morning would be pure and glorifying to you. God, would our hearts just burst with joy and love for Christ and for the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at the first uh, few verses here. I'm going to start in Romans 15, verse 14. My brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced about you that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on some points because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel of God. My purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. For I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed for the obedience of the Gentiles, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders, and by the power of God's Spirit. A mission-driven heart directs all attention to Christ. That's where we're going to start. Last week, Romans, uh, the first 13 verses of Romans 15 gave us one last picture of the fact that a gospel-centered life is a life that seeks to be humbly unified with the church. And we saw that the motivation for that was simple. It's the glory of God. This week, we're getting one last look at what it means to be mission-driven, and the motivation for that is the exact same. It's the glory of God. Paul says, I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. I dare not say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. It is his joy to serve as a priest of the gospel. Everything for Paul gets directed to Christ. All attention to the Lord and the work that he is doing. I don't know when uh, the last time you had a chance to uh, attend and spectate a Little League baseball game was. Maybe it was T-ball, machine pitch, it might have been coach pitch, but like a 60-pound individual steps up to the plate, taps the plate with his bat, looks intently at the ball, either on the tee or coming from the machine or from the coach. It's pitched in there, and with all of his might, or her might, a mighty swing, it makes contact with the top one millimeter of the ball, and it dribbles six inches in front of the catcher. After taking two steps down the third baseline, the batter redirects himself to first base while the catcher is trying to figure out how to pick up the ball grabs the ball, launches it down to first base, and deep into right field. (laughs) The batter has made it to first base and stopped and looked to mom and dad, who are saying, keep going, keep going. And so he runs to, to second. About the time he gets to second, the right fielder, who was blowing a daisy, has come in and grabbed the ball and is trying to now make a play at third base. But that's a really long throw, so it dribbles its way to the second baseman who picks it up and throws it into the dugout, right, on the third base side, as the runner rounds third and comes home and celebrates triumphantly what? My first home run. It was marvelous. 
It was spectacular. I am like mighty Casey at the bat. That's pretty much how it is when we want to boast about the things that we would do in life. Everything necessary for our accomplishments and all that the Lord does behind the scenes there, and we want to boast about what it is that we've done. Paul says, I will boast in nothing except for what Christ Jesus has done through me. He wants to direct all attention to Christ. There is no mistaken identity there for him that he is somehow the, the like great and marvelous Paul who is going to be the, the wonderful proclaimer of the gospel to the ends of the earth, even though when we look back and we see that that's exactly who he was, and if Paul were standing here today, he would say, because of everything the Lord did and nothing that I did, I was simply available. Paul understands who deserves the credit. I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. And if we're gospel-centered, then everything pertains to God. Your accomplishments at work, your accomplishments within your family, your accomplishments in sharing the gospel, your accomplishments in your personal life or in your hobbies, everything pertains to the Lord if we're gospel-centered. I would dare not say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, he says. And it's not the only place where Paul uses that kind of language. We, we know that this is a true heart thing for Paul because he writes about it in all of his epistles. Galatians 6.14, I will never boast about anything except for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, Paul's describing Christ. He says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and by him all things hold together so that he might come to have first place in everything. All attention gets diverted to Christ. The heart of this gospel-centered, mission-driven man understands who's worthy of attention and glory and who is not. He understands who is bringing about all of the fruit of his gospel labor. Specifically here in Romans 15, Paul's describing a heart that directs all attention to Christ in order to see people, specifically Gentiles, come to faith. He says in verse 16 that his purpose, his calling is to see people saved, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel. My purpose is that they may be an acceptable offering, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Your job might be one thing. Your season of life might mean that you're a student that you're a single young professional. You might be a stay-at-home parent or a worker in the marketplace. You might be a mom or a dad who's juggling kids at home in a full-time busy career. You may be a retired individual who has an empty nest. Those are seasons of life, and those seasons change. Professions change. Whole careers change. The ages and stages that your children go through will change, but our calling as Christians never does. We are to have hearts built soundly on the gospel that long to direct all attention to Christ in order that others might be saved. If, if you've got the means to do this easily, if you just flip back to Romans chapter 1. The very first thing Paul does 
If we were to jump all the way back to last January, this was the first message in this series. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. You could insert your name there. And you might not be one of the 12 disciples, one of the 12 apostles. You might not be Paul who had this amazing ministry to the Gentiles throughout his life, but the sentence would still read, insert your name, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And your life stage or your career would have no bearing on that calling. A heart that's directing all attention to Christ doesn't wait for the season of life when it will be easier to do that. When you're a student in high school or college, a mission-driven heart doesn't say, well, I'll get around to all of that when I'm out of school and I'm done partying and I'm married and I've settled down. Then it will be easier. When we're young professionals, we don't say, I'll wait to go all in for the cause of Christ until I'm married and I'm not working quite so much. When we've got children in the home, we don't say, once I've got an empty nest, then I'll give all my attention to the gospel. When we're empty nesters who've retired, we don't say, I've earned the right to shut it down and coast my way through retirement and enjoy the spoils of my life up to this point. The issue in all of these scenarios isn't one of season of life. It's one of state of heart. As you can see, it would be easy. It wouldn't take long to convince yourself at any stage of life that the next one would be the season of life where you'll commit to proclaiming Christ. We could convince ourselves for our entire lives that the next chapter will be the Jesus chapter. It won't be. That chapter won't start because your season of life changes. It will start because the state of your heart changes. That season of life won't change because your situation alters. It will change because your affection for Christ deepens. And as your affection for Christ deepens, you'll want to divert all attention to Him. And as you divert all attention to Him, you won't be able to help but see the lost. That's the next piece of this. Let's look at the second half of verse 19. As a result... I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. A mission-driven heart maintains a vision for the lost. This is different than merely understanding that there are lost people. It's different than having some sort of intellectual uh, acknowledgement that there are people who are not saved. What's the text tell us about Paul's heart? It tells us that he's already preached the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. That area extends in an arc from what is modern-day Israel, that's where Jerusalem is, all the way around to what is now modern-day Albania and Yugoslavia. Has Paul preached the gospel to every single person in those places? No. But he tells us that that isn't really his goal either. His goal is to proclaim the gospel, to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, to not build on someone else's foundation where someone's gone in and already shared the gospel. He wants to preach the gospel, plant a church, and then allow that local church to take the gospel out to those around them while he pushes on 
to the next place. Paul's vision for the lost is a holy ambition to meet an eternal need with a global strategy. Let me break that down. It's a holy ambition. Paul's ambition is not a worldly goal. It's not a selfish pursuit. That's why I use the word holy here. Paul is consumed with something that the Lord is consumed with, the proclamation of his name and his glory to the ends of the earth. He was controlled by that ambition. It set the agenda for his life. He makes it his ambition to do this. And so he says in verse 22, that is why I have been prevented many times from coming to you because he's not setting the agenda. He's allowing the Lord to direct that. He's allowing the Lord to lead him. You, will, you see all through Paul's writings and various pieces of his letters where he gives us some autobiographical information that he wanted to go somewhere, but he was prohibited or he couldn't go or the Holy Spirit stopped him from going. And so he didn't. He didn't force it. He went where it was that the Lord allowed him to go, where the Lord was leading him to go. So it's this holy ambition that sets the agenda for his life in order to meet an eternal need. That need is the need for the proclamation of the gospel. That need supersedes whatever other longing Paul might have in his life. That doesn't mean he doesn't have other longings. He wants to go to Rome. He wanted to travel many places. When he's in prison and he's writing to Timothy, he wants Timothy gives this kind of intimate, personal request to Timothy to bring my cloak and my parchments. I mean, he's got desires, but they are always subservient to the need, the eternal need to preach the gospel. They never get the top spot. Only the proclamation of the gospel gets that. One way you can check and see if your ambitions are holy or not is to evaluate what sort of need your ambition meets. Is it an eternal need? Or does your ambition meet a temporary need? Does your ambition serve the cause of Christ? Or does your ambition serve the desires of yourself? And Paul has a global strategy. Paul wants to preach the gospel where it's never been preached before. He doesn't want to build on someone else's foundation. His goal was to preach the gospel where it had never been spoken before. To proclaim the name of Christ where that name had not ever been uttered before and then to allow the work to continue among the lost there. And having completed that work from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, Paul sets his eyes on what would have been the literal end of the earth in that time, Spain. I'm trying to make it to Spain. He, I know of nothing else further out than that, and I'll stop by Rome on my way. I'll, I'll swing in and say hi to the church there, but make no mistake, he's not staying long in Rome. The church is already there. They can press the work on. He must go forward to where people know nothing about Jesus. There's a missionary to Africa, in fact, one of the pioneering missionaries on the continent of Africa named David Livingstone, and when he linked up with a sending organization in order to be able to be launched out on his mission endeavors. They asked him if he had a place where he wanted to go, and this was his response, anywhere, so long as it's forward. How do we talk about missions here at LCF? We talk about the unsaved, and that there are many, many unsaved people right here among us in our local area. 
And it's the responsibility of the prevailing local church to reach those unsaved individuals, whether that's the local church here in Kansas City reaching the unsaved here in Kansas City or a local church in Paris reaching the unsaved in Paris. But we also talk about the unreached. Those are places where work is being done, but the indigenous local church in that location isn't large enough to replicate and sustain itself. This would be the case for our church planting team in Western Asia. There's work being done there, but the local church, the indigenous local church, isn't large enough in order to reach out to its own people. And so we go, we send in order to see those people reached. And then there's also the unengaged. Those are groups of people among which Christ has literally never been named. There are like 324 people groups on planet Earth where the name Jesus Christ has never been spoken before. Multitudes of people who've never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 1. You don't have to flip there. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what has been made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their heart to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created rather than the creator who is praised forever. Amen. Those verses apply to all three groups, the unsaved, the unreached, and the unengaged. Do you believe that? Are you moved by it? I mean really moved to the point where you're willing to lift up all you do in order to have the attention directed to, the Christ, to Christ, to the point where you're willing to have a laser focus on a vision for the lost. It doesn't mean that you're not paying attention to anything else around you. It means when you go to work, you've got a laser-focused vision on the lost. It means when you're parenting, when you're raising your child. It means when you're out in the community doing whatever it is you might do. It means when you're planning for the future, you've got a vision for the lost. Because if you believed Romans 1, 18 to 25, and you centered your life on the fact that there is a Savior who can save us from the truth of Romans 1, 18 to 25, how could you be apathetic about those who don't know it? It would be impossible. What's the anatomy of a mission-driven heart? It wants to direct all attention to Christ, and it has a vision for the lost. This holy ambition to meet an eternal need with a global strategy among the unsaved and the unreached and the unengaged. We're going to watch a seven-minute portion of a John Piper sermon. That's longer than I would normally uh, play a video clip of, but he says better in seven minutes uh, anything that I could possibly say in like 70. It comes from a message he delivered to a group of college students in Atlanta, Georgia in 2000 at a gathering that is now the annual Passion Conference. And John Piper's message is this. You have one life. Don't waste it. You can direct your attention to the screen. 
You don't have to know a lot of things in order to make a huge difference for the Lord in the world. But you do need to know a few things that are great and be willing to live for them and die for them. People that make a difference in the world are not people who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by a very few things that are very, very great. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ and you don't have to have a high EQ. You don't have to be smart, you don't have to have good looks, you don't have to be from a good family or from a good school. You just have to know a few basic, simple, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them, which is why anybody in this crowd can make a worldwide difference. Because it isn't you. It's what you're gripped with. But one of the really sad things about this moment right now is that there are hundreds of you in this crowd who do not want your life to make a difference. All you want is to be liked. Maybe finish school, get a good job, find a husband or a wife, a nice house, a nice car, long weekends, good vacations, grow old healthy, have a fun retirement, die easy, no hell. And that's all you want. And you don't give a rip whether your life counts on this earth for eternity. And that's a tragedy in the making. That is a tragedy in the making. About three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and then in retirement, partnering up with Ruby, also pushing 80, and going from village to village in Cameroon. And the brakes give way, over a cliff they go, and they're dead 
instantly. And I asked my people, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, almost, a, a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, fly into eternity with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy, I asked. It is not a tragedy. I'll read you what a tragedy is. I've got a little article here from Reader's Digest. You don't read Reader's Digest, I know that. But there is a generation who does. This is a tragedy. Title of the article, Start Now, Retire Early. February 1998. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream. A nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement. Collecting shells. As the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Look, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good swing. And look at my boat. God, Look at my boat, God. Well, not for Ruby and not for Laura. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. There's nothing wrong with retirement. There's nothing wrong with any particular stage of life, but we don't ever retire from the calling to proclaim the gospel. We don't work instead of proclaim the gospel. We don't parent instead of proclaim the gospel. We don't go to school instead of proclaim the gospel. This chapter of your life right now, the one you are writing right now, could be your last one. What will you have to present to the Lord?
toys and electronics. Weekends at the lake. Your child's accolades and accomplishments. A cultivated image that you've cobbled together on social media. We're told that all of that is going to burn up. 1 Corinthians. Each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built up survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved. Worldly ambition. It directs attention to us. And we often fritter away our lives with such trivialities. When there are unsaved, unreached, unengaged people the world over. If you're looking for ways that you can be involved at LCF, talk to Joe Stewart. He would love nothing more than to tell you about the work that's happening in Western Asia or in East Asia. He would love nothing more than to tell you about some new short-term ministry partnerships that we've uh, recently struck up in Jordan and in India. He'd love nothing more than to talk to you about our students who are traveling to Japan this summer to share the gospel. There's that kind of work happening here. There's a heart at this church that maintains a vision for the lost, and you can plug into it. We encourage you to do that. Paul ends Romans 15 this way. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, this is verse 30, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in fervent prayers to God on my behalf. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, that my ministry to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed together with you. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Mission-driven heart depends on the Lord in prayer. A vision of this sort demands more than we are capable of as humans. And for that, we need the Lord's help. And so we turn to him in prayer. Paul asks the Roman church to strive with him in fervent prayer, to wrestle with him, to struggle with him, to bang down the door of heaven on behalf of this mission. What might you need to strive for in prayer? Maybe it's what your role is in the process of reaching the nations. Maybe it's how you can be used in your current vocation or season of life in order to reach the unsaved here in Kansas City. Maybe it's whether or not the Lord might want to send you somewhere. I look forward to the day when LCF people are sending letters or emails back to this congregation reporting the news that a completely unengaged people have not only heard but received the gospel. I look forward to that day. And God might be calling you to do that. Strive fervently in prayer to figure out if that's the case. You might need to strive fervently in prayer over the current initiatives and missions endeavors here at LCF and how you might be involved. Or you just might need to strive fervently in prayer over the names and individuals that you work with, live alongside, and do life with. 
This is more than passing prayer. It's a wrestling, an interceding, a crying out. Would we as a church wear out the grass at the foot of the cross on behalf of the lost? Would we put grooves into the floor before the throne of heaven as we pray over those who have never heard the gospel? And would we be ready to go should the Lord call us to do so? Because we want to direct all attention to him. Because we have a vision for the lost. And because as we depend on him in prayer, we're confident that he will respond to us and tell us what to do. A mission-driven heart directs all attention to Christ, maintains a vision for the lost, and depends on the Lord in prayer. I invite the worship team to come back up. And as I do, I'm going to ask you a few questions. The first song they're going to play is a new one. And as you listen to it and see its lyrics and you think about it, I want to give you a few questions. Do you understand your calling as a follower of Jesus? Do you long to do nothing more with your life than to direct all attention to Christ? Do you have a vision for the lost, for the unsaved, the unreached, the unengaged? And more than knowing that there are lost people, do we have a vision and a heart that longs for them to know the truth of the gospel? Or are we content with the lost and the dying spending an eternity apart from Christ? Would I rather collect shells or be used to save souls? Are you wearing out the ground at the foot of the cross and before the throne of heaven with a pleas for the successful movement of the gospel around our world? What do I need to let go of in order to have this kind of heart in my life? Those are the diagnostic questions. A mission-driven heart, as modeled by Paul here, directs all attention to Christ, maintains a vision for the lost, and depends on the Lord in prayer. Would we be that kind of people? Let's stand up and can engage with this first song. You can reflect on those questions. You can spend time in prayer. But we're going to worship the greatness of the gospel together.